Welcome to the second episode of the contraception series from the Committee on Contraception of FIGO. At FIGO, the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics, our vision is that women of the world achieve the highest possible standards of physical, mental, reproductive, and sexual health and well-being throughout their lives. As we strive towards this vision, we're developing a digital platform to improve partner engagement and to expand collaborations, which will ensure we have the right support for success. We present our new podcast series from the Committee on Contraception to help FIGO member societies with modern and novel educational tools on key aspects of sexual and reproductive health. We are pleased to be joined by the creators of Creogs Over Coffee, the number one resident education podcast in obstetrics and gynecology in the United States. With me today are Drs. Faye Kai and Nicholas Burns. Dr. Kai is a third-year maternal fetal medicine fellow at the University of Pennsylvania, and Dr. Burns is a third-year maternal fetal medicine fellow at the University of Washington. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is, again, Faye Kai, one of the members of the Kriyag's River Coffee podcast, and I am thrilled today to introduce Dr. Aparna Sridhar, who's going to be talking to us about a very important topic today. Dr. Sridhar is the chair of the Contraceptive Committee at FIGO. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kai. It's a pleasure to be partnering with Kriyag's River Coffee on this. Because our first set of podcasts are geared towards the topic of adolescent contraception, today we are going to discuss the available methods and their applications in the adolescent population. And just as a reminder, our previous episode, if you want to go check that out, we discussed adolescent pregnancy as a public health issue and why adolescent contraception is important. Let's start by discussing the safety of contraceptive methods in adolescents. Are contraceptive options safe for this population? Of course. Adolescents should be counseled on all available methods of contraception choices, right? Um, The World Health Organization's medical eligibility criteria suggests that age alone is not a medical condition for denying a contraceptive method to adolescents. The medical eligibility criteria does express some concerns with some medical condition, and I'm sure like as OBGYNs or as listeners of this podcast, Um, We can always go back to the medical eligibility criteria to review, make sure it's safe. But just like adults, um, it also suggests that the risks must be balanced um, with the potential benefits. So the main risks are associated with estrogen-containing contraceptive methods, and they are venous thromboembolism, and that's pretty much like one of the main risks or risks of stroke, etc., While these risks are low in adults, they're even lower in younger patients who inherently have even lower risks of these complications given their age-related healthier vascular systems. Additionally, when weighing the risks and benefits of contraception in the young adolescent patient, one must also factor in risks, both social and medical uh, risks that are associated with teen pregnancy, um, which we kind of discussed more in depth by Dr. Conry in the first podcast series. The WHO also published uh, Selected Practice Recommendations, SPR, um, which provides additional guidance on who, how, and when to use various contraceptive methods um, available here. The SPR provides guidance on who should be screened for contraception, how and when to start a method, how to manage common issues that arise. So it's it's kind of a specialized council on optimizing contraceptive use in specific 
patient population, especially the one which we are talking like adolescents. So I think, you know, to answer your questions, Dr. Kai, it's like safe, definitely. And all of us should be really thinking about counseling adolescents on all the available contraceptive choices. Thank you so much for that answer, Dr. Sridhar. Now, I think that not everyone is going to be comfortable uh, counseling adolescents on contraceptive methods. So just for education purposes, what factors should we consider when doing that type of counseling? That's a great question. I think first and foremost, I think cultural. Um, we are, we're talking about like FIGO and I think member societies from across the board and people are going to listen to this. And I think Every local and region has a different culture and we should keep the cultural factors into account, social factors, and I have to say, unfortunately, political factors, because I think the availability and um, the acceptability is also dependent on what's, um, you know, what's the lay of the land um, or law of the land, I should say, in this case. And the, all these factors, cultural, social, political, can influence contraception counseling, depending on where we are in this world. Most of the times, adolescents may have to choose what methods are just available in that community. For example, not every method is available in every country. Uh, however, the non-daily methods such as implants, injections, or intrauterine de devices may actually help with convenience because these are what we call as forgettable contraception. Like you don't have to remember taking something every day, which might be a challenge for these young adults. So the frequency with which they have intercourse um, their marital status, um, need for concealing the method from the family. It may also influence counseling depending on the culture and practices in that particular region. Um, adolescents should be counseled and screened regularly for sexually transmitted infections if that's a concern. And even if a method is suitable for the adolescent or particular population, like the political factors, as I mentioned before, in the form of are there restrictive laws that may not allow the provision of certain contraceptions in certain situations, you have to keep those things in mind while um, counseling adolescents on contraception. Although I have to say cost is a major barrier. Um, organizations like FIGO and World Health Organizations, we strongly recommend that every effort has to be made to limit the effect of cost on the as a barrier to choose a particular method because you know health is a right for all. Any method um, provision should be preceded by thorough patient-centered counseling of what are the risks of the method, what are the benefits of the method, are there any alternatives and all the risks and benefits of each alternative method available. And once a method is chosen, a little bit more detailed information should be given about how to use it, what are the side effects, and what to even expect and how to follow up. So I would say that, you know, all these factors play a really important role um, in kind of addressing the counseling for each of the contraceptive methods. All right. So let's shift now to, I think, some more specific questions about contraceptives. So one question that I have is, are there any implications for using these LARCs or long-acting reversible contraceptive methods among adolescents? Yeah, I did discuss that they're probably more, you know, there's less of what they need to do with these methods. So they're longer acting and reversible, which is really useful for younger population. So the long acting reversible methods, such as like implants or intrauterine devices, they should be made available for all adolescents, but 
We always have to remember that autonomy and choice should be the main factor for initiation of any method. They should want it for us to prescribe it. Adolescents should have the right to discontinue the method at any time. For example, if they're having like side effects from one, it shouldn't be just, just because it's a great method with a great effectiveness, we shouldn't be forcing it on them. So postpartum and post-abortion insertion of long-acting contraceptive methods should be encouraged, especially in adolescents where we're really thinking that shorter interpregnancy interval may really cause more health risks for them. And one thing that we should counsel everyone is that these do not protect against sexually transmitted infections. And, you know, we should make the younger adolescents aware of that. That's a great point, Dr. Sridhar. Let's now talk specifically about intrauterine devices or IUDs. And once we talk about that, I also definitely want to ask you about implants. There is a lot of, you know, misconception that, oh, the younger, you know, Nali Paris or adolescent population cannot use it. But I have to say that I think most of us know in our community that intrauterine devices are safe uh, with low rates of uh, complications. Um, they can be placed immediately after an adolescent pregnancy, miscarriage, or abortion to increase the pregnancy spacing as well. Um, it's really important to um, do anticipatory counseling on what the bleeding changes are with both hormonal methods and non-hormonal contraception, especially the IUDs, right? And then the standard guidelines for screening for sexually transmitted infection, whatever is in that region, should be followed prior to the intrauterine device insertion, but it shouldn't be a barrier at any time, unless you have an obvious infection. Adolescents should be reassured and should be counseled that the return to fertility is rapid. Um, one other thing that everyone is concerned is that insertion of the intrauterine devices in adolescents is challenging, but it can be optimized by anticipating and managing the pain at the time of insertion. Um, we can give pre-insertion analgesics, local anesthesia, maybe some distraction during the time of uh, placement, and maybe some individualized care based on the availability and need of any of the above that I told you should be used to see if we can easily place an intrauterine device. Some people do use misoprostol, but it's not usually routinely recommended for ease of use in insertion as the, you know it does come with side effects and the side effects actually exceed the benefit. Just like, you know, we talk about in adults, we can do paracervical block if and when it's available, but again, not a must every time. And um, once you place it, you have to tell them that the return visits are not like a, you know, must, but the barriers should be minimized by same day insertions and making sure that you give them all the um, follow up instructions so that they can come back. Um, we also usually worry about IUDs and pelvic inflammatory disease risk, but um, they don't increase one's risk of PID and adolescents don't experience perforation most, more often compared to adults. So um, we, there might be a slightly higher risk of expulsion of the IUD. So we do have to do a little bit of anticipatory counseling and follow up, but I think these are um, the main important factors. Thank you so much for that detailed response, Dr. Sridhar. I, I also wanted to ask about contraceptive implants because I think sometimes, you know, um, adolescents may be more inclined to get a device that is inserted potentially in their arm versus the uterus. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Definitely. There are other safe, long-acting methods for adolescents. 
Um, different types of implants are available depending on where you are um, in terms of the geographical location. One thing is that the providers have to be trained, um, you know, the superficial implant placement, um, especially, for example, in the United States, there is like a specific training they have to undergo. So it's their pre important prerequisite for like placement in adolescence. But in general, you have to understand which implant is available in your region and see if that's, you know, it's, if that can be used in adolescents. Um, one important thing about the side effects is the irregular bleeding, and that can be common following placement. So we really have to talk about the side effects of irregular bleeding with any implants and also talk about how long it's effective for and when do they need to come in um, in order to kind of follow up. And if the bleeding is really bothersome for you, you probably have to talk to them about taking it out. So in general, the implants and IUDs are quite effective in reducing like the menstrual flow and um, reducing the dysmenorrhea. But I think we're going to talk more about many benefits and what are the, you know, uh, other non-contraceptive benefits beyond pregnancy prevention in teens in our next episode as well. So um, that'll be coming up as well. Awesome. Because we have so many more questions about the benefits of contraception as well. So moving on, I think one question that some people may have is, do we need to make sure that an adolescent or a teenager is not pregnant before we initiate these contraceptive methods? So for example, do we need to have them come in to take a pregnancy test? Well, the selected practice recommendation uh, for contraception use published by the World Health Organization recommends that diagnosis of pregnancy is important in sexually active adolescents, but a provider can easily make sure they're certain like are reasonably certain that a preg um, that person is not pregnant if there are no signs of pregnancy along with some other criteria those include they have not had intercourse since the last menstrual period they have been correctly and consistently using a reliable method of contraception they're within the seven days of their normal menses they're about four weeks postpartum in non-lactating women and they're within the first seven days post-abortion or miscarriage um, timing. And then they're nearly fully breastfeeding, not having a period and less than six months postpartum. And if they meet all of the criteria or, I mean, criteria depending on the clinical scenario and no signs and symptoms of pregnancy, I don't think we absolutely require a pregnancy test. And um, that's kind of where I think those barriers can be removed in terms of like contraception provision. But if you're anyway worried about a possibility of pregnancy, yes, we should do a pregnancy test to make sure the adolescent is not pregnant at that time. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shreder, for coming onto the podcast and talking to us about this very important topic of contraceptive use in adolescents. Um, so now we've discussed the methods and practical implications for considering contraception among adolescents. And in the next episode, we will do a deeper dive into the benefits and risks specifically specific to adolescence and contraception. So stay tuned. You can also find references for this podcast in our description, as well as on the website. These will include references to the WHO, as well as the selected practice recommendations for contraceptive use, and also the ACOG committee opinion on adolescence and long-acting reversible contraception. 